0: The thing that I'm interested in with Mercado Libre is they've done a lot of on-the-ground work with their Mercado Pagos uh, product to be able to adhere to local laws. In Latin America, as we know, is not this one uniform space. It's this homogenous collection of different countries, each of them having their own payment systems and rules and regulations. So over time, Mercado Libre has become very good with with this payment arm, Mercado Pagos.
1: long and that's Motley Fool's senior analyst Asit Sharma. A couple of weeks ago, Asit mentioned that he'd seen mobile payments evolve during his recent trip to India. On today's show, we're taking a deeper dive. We talk about the growth of QR codes and micropayments and the companies gaining share of people's wallets in Asia and Latin America. So maybe we should start by having you set the table a little bit. Both of us first took an interest in the global mobile payment story while following something called Vodafone M-Pesa. What is M-Pesa?
0: Mary, M-Pesa is a payment system that is in wide use uh, throughout Africa. I first heard about it in the early 2010s, I believe. This is a technology that is SIM card and phone-based and cash-based. It was formed as a joint venture between Vodafone in Kenya and Safaricom in 2007. And the way it works is, if you are unbanked, let's say that you're sort of a cash player in an economy, but you've got a phone with a SIM card, you can use M-Pesa as a payment system. Now, the sort of downside or the hard thing about this technology, it relies on tons of intermediaries. Uh, These are called agents. Think of them as, they could be like small corner shops in a village. But they basically take your cash and then they load up your M-Pesa account. But once you have this account, Mary, even if you don't have a a bank, you and I can transact between each other. You can add money to your account. You can withdraw it from your account. You need the help of these uh, so-called intermediaries or agents. But it gives you the ability to go from someone who is cash based without any type of uh, banking at all into someone who's playing in the current global monetary system. Now, by coincidence, Mary, we found out that you also have an interest and actually some experience with M Pesa in a country in which it first went to outside of Africa, and that's India.
1: Yeah. So in 2016, I found myself in Tamil Nadu, which is a state in southern India, and I was there doing research kind of in conjunction with Vodafone. I was in college and had two good friends, and we kind of had developed this interest through research and reading and just kind of following the story through the news. I developed this interest in mobile money and how it was being used, um, especially kind of throughout the developing world. And so we wound up applying, building a research project and applying for funding from our school, shout out UVA. And that summer we found ourselves in Tamil Nadu interviewing women who used M-Pesa and we were really curious about the social impacts of the technology so we worked with Vodafone which was he- Vodafone India was headquartered in Mumbai at, at the time I'd assume it still is um, and those headquarter Vodafone employees connected us to those agents that you mentioned Asset, that were in local cities kind of throughout Tamil Nadu so through those local agents We were then connected with actual M-PESA users and some non-users, and we got to interview them and ask them questions about basically their habits surrounding M-PESA, how they had kind of used money before having access on their phone, and how they were using money and using M-PESA after having access to Mm M-PESA. And again the focus was kind of on social impact. So the important thing to remember here is you mentioned like unbanked people. So a lot of the women that we talked to, we were in really rural areas, they had a phone. Everyone had a phone. But if they wanted to go to a bank, oftentimes that was like a really long journey to get to a safe afford bank. And when I say long journey, I mean like walking or taking a bus and that took up half a day or even a full day in some instances. And at the same time, a lot of these women also worked jobs where they were paid hourly or daily. So going to the bank just to conduct a really simple transaction or take out money required not only a whole day's journey, but also lost wages. Like you were spending money on bus fare, but also you were losing money because you wouldn't, couldn't work. So this really, something that we think of as so simple was actually quite a complicated and expensive proposition. So the biggest thing about M-Pesa was access and we talked to a lot of people who used it for like peer to peer transactions. They could send money to family members that were working or living overseas, they could receive money from family members that were living or working overseas. The biggest but also most basic social impact that we found M-Pesa had was granting access and that access led to increased autonomy. When I heard that you had recently visited India this past summer, you had reported that kind of the landscape of Mobile Bunny had changed a bit. So I was really curious to hear how it had changed.
0: Yeah, it's it's so totally different today, Mary, but it does have its roots in uh, those early innovations in the 2010s. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you were in India in 2016, correct? Mm-hmm. So that's such an interesting year because that's the year that everything started changing in India. Probably... you boarded the plane, flying back from this great summer experience. And by the way, I, I cringe with embarrassment when I think about the way I spent my summers in college. I mean, we should all be this motivated to find interesting projects, to go after money that an institution will give us, and to do great things out in the field, empowering women. Gosh, let's not even go into how I spent my summers. But I'm thinking, you got on the plane, flew back home thinking, wow, I've seen the future. And you saw the seeds of the future. But in that year and in the next year, so many things happened. One, uh, the government launched some payment applications, most notable being UPI. Uh, This is an interface that lets you make those peer-to-peer transactions. There's an app built on that that's also uh, made by the Indian government, the National Payments Corporation, I believe, It's called Beam. And Beam is like this facilitator to to make quick payments back and forth. So, the the Indian government sort of stepped in and really put in a solid interface, a backbone, if you will, on which future apps could run. The other thing is that a company which has long been uh, influential in Indian industry and retail, Reliance Industries, launched a uh, Telephone company called Geo, J I O, and it was so influential because it brought 4G broadband into India all over India. In fact, if you like read about the history of Indian telecoms, you'll see some experts divide India into the the post Geo era and the pre Geo era because right around 2016 2017, everything changed. Now. Something else has been going on for the last several years, which you've all heard about is demonetization in India. That's the government trying to take out uh, cash from the system. And we think here in the states like, why would you want to force cash out of the system? And the reason is is that uh, for time, since time immemorial, there's always existed this sort of system of black money in India where people try to avoid paying their taxes by taking some money under the table, if you will. And unscrupulous folks will stash large denomination bills in their house or in their businesses to avoid having to pay tax to the government. So one simple brushstroke that the government used was to say, okay, no more of these huge notes. After this date, you cannot use the X thousand rupee note. In fact, that's still going on. There's a wave two, happened just this year. The 2000 rupee note is being taken out of the system. So you're down to what's the most used note that I saw in India, which is the 500 rupee note. If you get money out of an ATM, you'll see a flurry of these 500 notes come out. So right around that time, M-Pesa was poised to be this big system in India just as it had in Africa. But I think the difficulty of this labor-intensive reach Having to invest in these intermediaries, then having to invest in the marketing in India, which, even though it's granted a very populous country, um has so many spread out villages in in these different states. I think that MPesa was just blindsided by the the innovation that came about. and it it started, I think, with the government just putting in this uh, solid interface system. One more thing that uh, you know, is 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 different. besides, so many different payment methods is Google Pay is pretty big in India, among other apps that you can use. We'll talk about something called Paytm, which is an app lots of folks like to use. But Google Pay adapted to the local payment methodologies, and it incorporates everything. Credit card payments, uh, you can use uh, Beam and the UPI methods I was mentioning earlier. It's really popular to use Google Pay to pay for your Zomato and Swiggy accounts. These are very, very popular food delivery apps. <laughs> Folks in Indian cities love to order out, and it's become so easy to use these tools. They, they've been widely adopted.
1: Yeah, those food delivery apps that you mentioned are kind of a great segue because I feel as though up to this point, we've talked primarily about mobile payments as, as kind of like being a facilitator of pretty basic like economic transactions, peer-to-peer transactions, sending money to a family member, saving, just having basic accessibility. But you start talking about these food delivery apps and the, the possibilities of mobile payments extend far beyond just basic economic transactions, right? And one of the places you see that play out is in what's called micropayments, which I think you saw a lot of, right? But basically, the idea behind this is many people might have heard of microloans. Micropayments are the same kind of concept. Rather than going to Costco and buying something in bulk to get a discount or going to not a bulk-sized store and buying a number of detergents, micropayments would enable a purchaser, a consumer, to buy a single detergent at a small price, right?
0: Absolutely. I mean, this was pioneered, again, in Africa and also in Asia by the big multinational Consumer goods conglomerates. So we think of Procter and Gamble as selling like tons and tons of the packets that we put in our machines, um, tide pods, et cetera, and all kinds of, of different food and consumer staples. But most of us don't ever pause to think that part of their revenue stream also comes from selling these individual packs, like micro packs of toothpaste, of detergent, of food. They pioneered this. And now in the developing world, you also have ways to pay for these things which are efficient. Why don't we have micropayments in the States? Primarily because we operate off of credit cards. And Mm. when there's a credit card transaction, there's a Two to 3% fee that the merchant is picking up just to make that transaction. So, very, very small transactions here aren't worth it for merchants. My dentist, when I walk in now, there's a sign that says, Look, if you pay with a debit card or check, you'll save 3%. Otherwise, we're going to put that 3% fee on. And I think most of the people who are listening today have seen instances where you're encouraged to use a debit card rather than a credit card. You really can't in this system have a micropayment system that works for both parties. But you can in places that bypass the, the bank card process altogether and go directly peer-to-peer. And I saw fruit sellers on the streets with their stands that could take micropayments. Um, we could pay the local goods store to send stuff up to my wife's mother, who lives on the 15th floor of this Mumbai high-rise, and you just instantly pay for really small denomination services and goods.
1: And a lot of those payments can also happen through a QR code. I think like in the U S where the place that I most often see a QR code payment is like in a restaurant maybe. And even then I kind of bristle at it. I'm like, I want the old fashioned interaction. I want the physical menu, et cetera. But elsewhere in the world, QR codes are ubiquitous. They're used for payments all over the place.
0: There is a company called Paytm, which I mentioned. They're really big with QR codes. The QR code technology is great because it is basically functioning as this virtual wallet. It's not really uh, hitting your bank account per se, but you're you're loading money from your bank account into the the virtual wallet, and then there's an you know an API call um, on the merchant side. It's really seamless, easy to use and I think that's another very popular payment method there. I'm like you. I I loved the QR code when it came out because it was sort of the middle of the pandemic, and there's this great restaurant in downtown Raleigh my wife and I like to go to great outdoor seating. They put in the QR codes and you didn't have that human interaction and at that point we didn't really care. So we would scan the QR codes and get the menu and pay through Toast, uh, which is another yet another, you know, payment technology in the restaurant space. But now, you know, in this day and age, I do want that interaction <laughs> as well. But I was curious, Mary, PayPal went big into QR codes putting that functionality into their system and I'm a PayPal user, but I don't really use QR codes in my daily life. I was curious, do you do you use them at all?
1: Not really. Again, I the only time I can really think of is a few restaurants, not all of them, will allow. There's one right around the corner from where I live in Denver where I can pay through QR code. And when given the option, I, I don't like to do it. But that's kind of the extent of where I've seen it, in the States, at least.
0: Yeah, so weird, uh, just to see the difference in adoption but Necessity being the one that, that drives that uh, global uptake of the QR code because it's just simpler and you don't have to have, again, you know a credit card to function in that system.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, you talked a lot about India, um, and I want to pivot and talk a little bit about investment opportunities, maybe some that are global but that aren't focused solely on India. So, is there a company you're watching that's making some interesting moves in the mobile payments, mobile wallet space?
0: Yeah, I think Mercado Libre is interesting. They're well known as a big e commerce provider in Latin America. This is a company that has a big concentration in a few countries Brazil, Argentina, and Mexico. Those are its biggest markets. And they have, of course, a very well known payments system and functionality called Mercado Pagos, if I pronounce that correctly. And that serves both users and merchants. So it's a two sided system, much like PayPal, the way PayPal operates in the, in the United States. They have a lot of functionality built in for merchants, make it super easy for consumers who want to buy things online or in physical channels. The thing that I'm interested in with Mercado Libre is they've done a lot of on the ground work with their Mercado Pagos. Uh, product to be able to adhere to local laws. In Latin America, as we know, is not this one uniform space. It's this homogenous collection of different countries, each of them having their own payment systems and rules and regulations. So, over time, Mercado Libre has become very good with, with this payment arm, Mercado Pagos, in going into a jurisdiction, local and then national, being able to get approvals and helping people transact from the merchant side and from the customer side. Where that has an increasing future for this company in payments is the ability to now take that cross-border. And as Latin America grows, I think you'll see some of the functionality they're offering to merchants extend. So, if you start as a merchant in Mexico um, and want to sell in Uruguay, Mercado Libre through Mercado Pagos is is going to make this happen for you. There are some competitors in that space. DLocal is a publicly traded company that sort of does just this. It goes in and builds functionality country by country, and they actually hired away uh, Mercado Libre's really great CFO uh, this this year. But um, I I like this. We've seen Mercado Libre as a very successful investment here at the Motley Fool. Uh, we just uh, re re-upped it uh, in, in some different services across the full and Stock Advisor introduced as, as a recent recommendation. Many people think, well, how much more can this company grow? And the answer is, it can still grow a lot. It's a big continent with a lot of people who are coming into wealth and using more and more uh, different payment methods. So. Uh, that's one I'm interested in. What what about you? I mean, I, I I had a sense from a conversation we had the other day that you're also looking at a, a pretty well-known name in this space.
1: <laughs> I am. I I feel like you can't talk about mobile money without talking about Alibaba, which is a Chinese company. And kind of like Mercado Libre, it's often w- when described to people that are less familiar with it, it's often described as like the Amazon of that region. And that's in large part because Alibaba has an e-commerce arm, but it also just has its hands in a million different pots. And one of those pots is mobile money. When I talk about Alibaba and mobile money, what I'm really talking about is Alipay. And it works similar to a lot of the different like mobile money platforms that we've discussed so far today. You can link it to your bank account, to your credit card, to your debit card. But it also has the capability to like to conduct some really robust and impressive financial transactions You can use Alipay in China to do everything from buy tickets to the theater to pay for a taxi, likely through a QR code. You can also use it to invest in a money market fund, to get insurance, to get a microloan. The possibilities are really endless. And Alibaba, Alipay being a part of Alibaba, A really key facet of that mobile money app is that it seamlessly integrates into basically all of Alibaba's other functions.
0: Yeah, it's such a fascinating company. And for quick reference, I um, chatted with Dylan Lewis earlier this week on Motley Fool Money. We talked about the progression of some spin-offs that Alibaba is going to have to increase value for shareholders. So, that's even another interesting sidelight to this story. I want to sort of pick up on Alibaba in, in terms of another well-known name, which is PayPal. Mary, PayPal is a company that has also sort of um, come come under hard times in terms of its share price rising. That's because its total payments volume has slowed. It's seen a little bit of you know, decrease in activity on its platform, even though it's still it's a hugely strong free cash flow generator. Um, recently, Dan Schulman, the longtime CEO, gave investors no end of angst because it took a <laughs> long, long time to, to work with the board to find a successor. But they have named a successor in a youngish veteran from Intuit, Alex Chris. So Alex Chris managed Intuit Small Business and Self-Employed Group, which itself is a really large business. Why this is all related to Alibaba is that Dan Schulman is actually a huge fan of super apps like Alipay and WePay. He's been a long time admirer of these Chinese conglomerates that seem to offer everything in one interface. Right, you have one form factor, your phone, it does almost everything for you. And I sometimes wonder if PayPal overreached under Dan Schulman, mm. tried to branch out in too many parts of the payment space. I mean, they're everywhere. They have this cash cow little known outside of those who invest in PayPal, called Braintree. But that's sort of the nuts and bolts engine of their payment solutions. And Braintree brings in a lot of cash for PayPal. Now, outside of that, they've offered so much functionality, small business loans to merchants, uh, incentives for uh, customers. They bought a browser extension basically called Honey that helps you you know hunt for a lower price when you're shopping online all of this diversification but i wonder do they get away from the core mission which is to provide just a truly great payments app from both sides you know for the merchant side and for the customer side i wonder if alex chris might not bring some of the same thought process to paypal but maybe in a crisper strategic fashion and the reason i say this is that Sasan Ghadarzi, who's the CEO of Intuit, who I've had the pleasure to talk to a couple of times about their business, has been very keen to add on modern-day pieces that make Intuit stronger. Uh, We know Intuit is a tax business and a business that offers like online accounting software, but they acquired MailChimp, they have a consumer finance business. So, Alex Chris is part of that leadership team that has seen how to effectively merge these disparate pieces and make that whole greater than the sum of its parts. I think he's still going to try to fulfill this mission of of PayPal's.
1: You mentioned the diversification that PayPal had been exploring. This space, we've spent all this time talking about mobile payments and all the different companies that are popping up and different innovations and, and different paths that companies are pursuing in regards to mobile money. If this space is so ripe with innovation why hasn't it taken off?
0: That's curious i mean i've I've got a uh, idea about it, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts. so one is that the industry is always moving towards commoditization. What you've got if you're a payments company is some amount of volume crossing through your platform. And then you've got a take on that. You've, you've got a slice of every transaction. At the end of the day, that's what you're bringing home to the bottom line. So to get beyond that destiny of being a company, however innovative today, that at some point in the future is going to be attacked by rivals and then get into this race to the bottom in pricing and commoditization so your take rate would be declining, that seems like a really hard feat to pull off. And I used to be so interested in this space because I was lured by just the innovation. Fascinated Mm -hmm. to travel around the world and see all the different new techniques that are used to make payments. But at the end of the day, it's really hard to survive over the long term and bring a lot of value to shareholders. So most companies, I think, do try to become more Alibaba like versus focusing on that one product that got them to the dance. I sort of like a company called Audion, pretty well known. In that, while they're also playing a little bit of this game, they do focus on their core competencies. They just secured a banking license in the UK, which is notoriously difficult to do. Audience mm-hmm. also, their s- shares have uh, slumped this year as they've seen some competition on pricing in their business. Mm-hmm. But it's a company that really invests in its core product, and I think that um, it's one of the few that that might be able to emerge from that destiny of, of trying to do everything at once, facing price competition, and then just you know sort of becoming this mature company that people are loath to invest to in. They, they almost look like value traps, some of these companies. PayPal being maybe the, the biggest potential value trap out there, although we'll see with the new CEO what his direction is. That That's sort of my view of it, Mary, but I'm curious. I mean, you're so interested in this space. What do you think about this as, as an investable theme? for listeners.
1: I think it's really fascinating to watch, but kind of like you, I feel as though a lot of the big players in this space are preoccupied with becoming a super app. And there are some companies, Mercado Libre, Alibaba, which we've mentioned, that seem to have proven like okay, they're they're if they haven't done it, they're doing it. They're on their way to doing it. But I wonder if if that just trying to be everything at once if that's really the best path forward here, if that causes more distraction rather than allowing a company to focus on its niche. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Mary Long. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.